This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben Hong, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hello. Chris Fritz. Hello. And Ari Clark. Hey. Now, this is a special episode today because we also have a guest panelist, Sarah Dion. Hi there. And we also have a special guest. And for this episode, it is David Corsid. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, yeah. So my name is David Corsid. I work at Microsoft and I've been doing web development for about eight years now. I do a whole lot of different things, but my interests are mainly with animations, front-end stuff, state management, state machines, all that fun stuff. Yeah, funny you mentioned that. I think the first time we met was at CSS DEF CONF, right? And I think it was, I think you were talking about like, we were talking about animation libraries and stuff back then. Oh gosh. Yeah, we were. And animation is still something that I'm really passionate about. So... So, yeah, so I know you back when you were sort of giving talks on animation, but lately, I, for those who don't know, David has been talking a lot about X state and like this concept of state machines. And so, if you were like an elevator pitch for state machines, how would you explain it to someone? Well, I'll give the anti elevator pitch. It's sort of like <laughs> UX with extra rules. So, <laughs> which doesn't sound that fun to anyone, but my elevator pitch is state machines are an incredibly old concept. They are fundamental to computer science and programming as we know it. And so I I got really interested in state machines when I had to work on really complex workflows. And that's where state machines shine because state machines aren't just a new way to manage state. Instead, they are a way to uh, determine what behaviors can happen when you're in a certain state and they make your logic really a lot more visually clear and able to be understood by many people, not just developers. And you can visualize it, which is a really cool thing. Yeah. So for those who haven't worked with XState before, basically you get to see these basically workflow diagrams. So as you're typing out the different things that your app can do, you actually see it just basically as you're typing out what can happen. Like that diagram is dynamically generated for you. And it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of your talks, you reference this paper from like 87. So I was wondering how, what got you into state machines and state charts? So one of the first jobs that I worked at was at this e-prescribing medical company. We, and this was back in the era of, I think even Backbone. Backbone was a hot stuff back then. Otherwise, it's just jQuery plugins everywhere. So we had these really long forms and they were complex forms, like one of those where If you check this checkbox, then you show this. But if the user chooses a different option, then you have to hide that and show something else. And then you had all these validation rules. And that's it it was just extremely complex to work with that. So eventually, I started just looking for patterns. I'm like, there has to be a better way of doing this than uh, writing if-then statements everywhere and doing switch statements and just doing all these weird things. So I, I started doing research, and I found state machines. And that sort of led me into state charts because state machines have this, state machines are really great at organizing logic, but they could get really complex really quick because you get into what's called combinatorial explosion, which means there's so many different possibilities of things that could happen. And if you don't organize it correctly, then 
it becomes more complex than the original problem you were trying to solve. And so that's where I found state charts. <laughs> state charts organize state machines into, uh, you could have nested states, you could have parallel states, you could have things like history states, and all of these other features that are completely compatible with state machines, but that really simplify your logic. And so that's where I discovered that paper in 1987 written by Professor David Harrell. And that was an influential paper. Uh, even back then, it made its way into UML. And so that's why there's many areas of technology that are using state charts today. And so my hope is just to bring it to the web. So David, I would really love to ask you so many questions about state machines. I'm a big, big nerd with that. And so first, thank you for making them rise in the front end world. <laughs> um, so until not that long ago, finite state machines were like that old nerdy academic model, you know, that you oh, yeah. would only encounter in probably elaborate backend code. Or if you talked with really old programmers, they would tell you a lot about state machines because yeah, if you're a nerd in computer science, yeah, you, <laughs> you, you have heard about state machines, but probably not if you don't. And with so many self-taught engineers, maybe that's something that people don't encounter that much. And now it seems that everyone is talking about state machines, especially in the front end world. And I think uh, it's mostly thanks to you. So thank you for that. <laughs> and it's not the first time that it has happened. You know, we've seen it with functional programming. We've seen it with component-oriented interfaces, which are an extension of object orientation. And so it's really funny that in the front-end world, we seem like we're rediscovering many patterns that are really not that new, but really suitable for the problems that we're trying to solve. And so I have maybe two questions about that for you. Like, how does it feel first to be at the root of this pattern rediscovery in the <laughs> front-end world? And uh, how do you feel about seeing those tried-and-true patterns slowly emerge in front-end? Like, when you see that they've been working for so many years, how does it feel to see them slowly, but also kind of suddenly emerging from it? Well, first of all, I definitely don't want to take credit for bringing this like <laughs> to, to, to web development in general. There's two people that I definitely want to call out. The first one is Eric Mogensen. He gave a presentation back in, I think, 2014. And this was when I was basically just starting as a web developer, just sharing the idea of using state charts and user interfaces to really simplify the logic. And he also made the website, The World of State Charts, which is at statecharts.github.io. And it's a really informative site, just teaching how to use state charts, what all the different terms mean, and lots of, lots of really good visuals. The other person is Jacob Beard. He is also someone who I think was pretty much the first one to start bringing SCXML, which is the state chart spec, the W3C state chart spec, into JavaScript with his Scion libraries, which this was many years ago. His main goal is basically getting Scion or SCXML, which is this XML format for state charts, to be able to be run by JavaScript. And I, I was strongly influenced by a lot of his ideas. I kept referencing his work and basically also bounced ideas off of him as well. And that's how I eventually created XState so that state machines and state charts could be more approachable to the modern web and to many different frameworks. So I completely echo what you're saying. I'm really excited that a lot of people 
are excited about state machines and state charts in the web because they're finally seeing like, all right, this stuff from a really long time ago is actually useful. And I thought it was just going to be a niche thing where it's like, okay, I'm fine just directly manipulating state. Why do I need to do all this extra stuff? But people are really seeing the value in it. And uh, that's why to your second question, all of these old things that are popping up, what we don't realize is there's so many research papers out there. And these research papers are just wealth of knowledge and ideas. And sometimes they could be really dense and hard to read and no one wants to read research papers for fun. But everything that we could think of that we're doing now in web development has probably been written before in these research papers. And so that's why I'm excited that people are starting to see the value of them more. What's an example of a common scenario that we probably have all dealt with where a state machine might be better than, say, Boolean state management? Ah, that's an awesome question. So fetching, fetching data. Obviously, we could say, is loading true? And eventually, once we get our data or once an error happens, we say, is loading false? And then we might have, is error or we have error. If error is null, then didn't fail. If error is not null, then there's probably an error. But that, of course, gets into impossible states. And I talk about that a lot in my presentations. But there's one tiny wrench in the whole, we don't need to use state machines. We could just use Boolean things that I always like to present. And that's, what if you want to cancel a promise? What if uh, you change routes or something? Or what if you want to do any sort of special business logic, like controlling the amount of time someone could retry hitting an API or something like that? And so if you ask anyone in React or Vue or whatever community, how do you cancel a promise? The answer is it's not easy because we just like to think of it as async await. But async await has sort of this black hole in the middle where nothing can happen. You can't like interrupt something. And so that's where state machines really help. Because with state machines, the only way you could change states and behavior is through events. When an event happens, state changes. And so cancellation is just an event. Retrying is just an event. Resolve, reject, all of that, they're all just events. So it becomes really trivial to introduce something like cancellation. So when it comes time for you to take these ideas and apply them to your UI, like I was watching some of your talks and then I read the Herald paper and I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And it's at a level where I can kind of understand it, where he's using just an example of how would you control state of a wristwatch, a digital wristwatch, to be clear. But then when I think about the other ideas that you raised, like adaptive UI or thinking about bringing some of those ideas into the app I'm currently working on or like trying to sell it to somebody who probably uh, is a lot more has a lot more experience engineering than me. I'm like, it seems like a tough sell because there's a lot of setup time. I don't completely understand it. So I don't feel like if somebody else just sees the set of time, I can convey to them how they would completely understand it. Like, how would you recommend somebody go from, I don't know what a state machine is to like, oh, here's how I can start using them today. One of my favorite things I'd like to do is take it back, like even just remove yourself completely from technology, use a pencil or marker or something and paper or a whiteboard. And so when you're describing a new feature or how an app flow should work, I like to draw boxes and say, like, here's the login state. And the user could either log in successfully or the login can fail and draw another box. Be like, all right, it takes you to the dashboard or it takes you somewhere else. And this could be from big components like your entire app to small components like 
a special button that might have some sort of loading state in it. And drawing those boxes and arrows is, in my opinion, really intuitive to anyone because all you have to do is follow the arrow. When an event happens, just follow the arrow, figure out what next box you're in. And so with that, programming it and actually implementing like state machines and state charts is just a matter of copying exactly what those boxes and arrows are. And I find that boxes and arrows are more accurate for describing uh, user flows and business requirements than just writing it out. Like if you've ever written like lots and lots of user stories, you'll realize, okay, there's a lot of edge cases, but I really don't want to write them because <laughs> it's going to be an entire essay instead of, you know, just drawing boxes and arrows like a flowchart. One of the things that I really love about state machines is, is that first, it's really declarative. And second is that it's the closest thing to a flowchart that you would work with. Like if you work with a product manager or if you work with a UI designer, they would probably represent state that way. Like mm -hmm. you would work with a designer, they would draw a button that can go from that state to that state and they would uh, say, okay, there's a transition there. And they would probably represent it if you had to say, okay, draw me the finite states of that button. All the states, all the transitions, they would probably draw a flowchart. Same with the product manager. If you say, okay, from that screen, where can I go to? Where can I go back? Where can I go back to? What are the actions that I can do? They would probably draw a flowchart. And so it feels because on your website, on the website of uh, X states, you have a visualizer, which mm -hmm. is an incredible uh, helper because you can just paste your code and you can see the full visualization. So that, that's really interesting. And I wondered, have you maybe considered uh, pushing that visualizer, pushing it into something that maybe could be a tool, a collaborative tool between UI designers, product managers, and developers, just like you have between, like today you have uh, tools like, I think it's Figma or yeah, all those softwares that are in the browser that allow designers to almost create the components, like they generate the React components or the view components. And it's a lot less work for the developers. So have you considered building something like that to help with collaborative work? You know, I think that someone actually experimented with making a Figma plugin for XState and it actually worked out pretty well. I don't use Figma myself, but I, I saw some screenshots and it definitely looks like an interesting approach. What's interesting is that there's many design tools that do exactly what you're saying, whether you know they call it flowcharts or user flows or whatever, like Envision Studio, Framer Web does it as well. You see those little blue arrows that go from uh, one to the other. Unfortunately, Framer Web is completely React, which uh, that, that's a separate topic. I think that uh, design tools really should not marry themselves to a single framework. I, I think that that's counterproductive. But yeah, I have thought about it before, and it's something that I am uh, planning on doing, obviously, when I, when I have some more free time. One of my priorities right now is at least getting dev tools to work. And so this will ideally work for XState machines that are authored in absolutely any framework so that you could just open dev tools and see your machine go from state to state as you're interacting with the app. And even something like that is extremely valuable to people who are uh, maybe not as technical as developers, such as other designers, where they could say, I'm playing around with this app. 
I want to know what can happen next. So they'll be able to see the visualization on the side and be like, oh, I could do that or I could do that. Or they could say, hey, this is, uh, this is missing a transition from here to there, or it's impossible for me to get out of this date, things like that. So yeah, it's definitely something that I want to work on in the future. Yeah, another area that you raised in uh, one of your talks that seemed interesting related to that was like the potential to use something like XState to also help debug and test your code, like whether it's looking at the steps that a user took to encounter a certain bug or like to make sure that you're covering all of those hard to find edge cases that you mentioned earlier. Like I'm still struggling throughout my mind around how I would implement that, but it seems like there's so much potential to view everything as a state machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess now I understand why you tweet so much about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I try to tweet about other things too. But yeah, in, in general, the more testing you do, especially end-to-end -end testing, the more you realize, number one, writing an end-to-end -end test is, is pretty tedious. Even just a single end-to-end -end test could be hundreds of lines of code because you're doing so many things. And while you're writing the test, you realize, okay, this is only one possible thing a user could do. The user could do something else and it branches off and does something different, but you're like, I, I really don't want to write another end-to-end -end test. So people tend to focus on the happy paths. Now, I've spoken with a few QA people and people who are you know, just really passionate about testing. And what they'll often do is they'll draw these flow charts of sorts and just trace a path from one state to another and be like, this is something a user could do, but the user could also do something different over here and just visualizing all of the different uh, ways that a user could use the app. Model-based testing, it's called, is no different than that. Instead of drawing out you know, the flowcharts, so to speak, you're writing them in code. And then you just give it to XDTest. XDTest just generates all of those possible paths for you, and uh, you wire them up to actual assertions. For example, if I have an event like uh, submitted form, then I would map that to you're going to find this button and you're going to click it. And so anywhere that submitted form events takes place, it knows what to do. So that's one way of thinking about it. Even if you don't want to use XDTest or anything, just drawing out you know, user flows of your application can make it so that you could find almost every single edge case that can happen in your app and write all of those tests. Last week, I, I was writing out I was trying to draw out a test plan for myself. And then this week I read about state machines and I was like, oh man. <laughs> nice. One thing I was curious about that you probably get asked all the time is I was wondering if you ever tried to represent piano playing with a state machine. <laughs> I love you're it. Reading, you're, you're reading my mind. I've thought so much about that. So like piano is not my last name and David K. Piano. I just... Really like playing piano. I, I went to college for piano. So as far as computer science courses, I took like two introductory ones in C, which was really painful. I don't want to think about pointers or memory allocation ever again. <laughs> it's just really, really painful. But no, piano was my major in college. So when I'm playing piano, I, first of all, like chord progressions. I like to think of those as uh, sort of state machines or Markov chains or something like that, where it's like, okay, from this chord, I could go to this one next, or I could go to this one. And depending on where you go, that sort of changes the mood or changes the way that a piece progresses. Specifically with piano playing too, if you've ever played the piano, you'll realize that fingerings are something that are really tricky. Uh, when you're beginning piano, they're all written out for you, like put this finger here, put that finger there. But when you get into more advanced pieces, composers either write hints like, ah, put your thumb there, 
And then for the other 60 notes, it doesn't tell you anything, or it just doesn't provide fingerings for you at all. And so that's why thinking in a state machine sort of way, you're like, okay, there's five possible events that can happen. And some of these lead to dead states or sync states where you basically can't do anything. So for example, if you're going up and you play your fifth finger on something, you can't really, you know, can't really move anywhere. So that's why you have to strategize and put your thumb under things like that. And so, so yeah, unfortunately I do think of state machines when I play piano too. (laughs) (laughs) I remember like one of the most annoying things for me is like when you have to trill or something and then like, even though you're going back and forth, maybe between two fingers. Like ideally you'd be switching all the fingers for balance or something. And yeah, yeah. State machine. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. But speaking of which with, with music, I think that being a musician really sort of guides you towards that path of wanting to visualize everything because music is incredibly creative. Like the, the amount of different melodies and harmonies you could create is, you know, pretty much infinite. And just representing that in a very standard notation, which is music notation, is just something that's really, really interesting and something that we all understand is that this very thick set of notation that hasn't changed for centuries represents the majority of music that has ever been created. And state machines and state charts could be that music notation for code. That'd be awesome. That should be the new tagline on the site. (laughs) <laughs> music notation for code <laughs> yeah so i had a, i had a question for you david about like more of the library at state more than only state machines because mm-hmm. uh you are at the fourth version uh fourth major version of x state uh, in yes. three years that the library exists and you are the the fourth major version and i i wondered like what were the big turning points like when you make a new major version it means that you're going to break the API. So you found out new stuff. You've learned from your mistakes. And not to say that it, like X-State is not like, if you take Vue, for example, Vue is barely at Vue 3 right now, but X-State is already at version four and it's not a full UI library. It's one library that you would use with Vue or with React or whatever. Right. And so I was wondering like, what were the big turning points, the big, realizations that you made as a library author while doing that? So version four internally was a big overhaul and there were a couple breaking changes, but for the most part, machines that were authored in version three are mostly compatible with version four. I I have a migration guide somewhere, but the changes are extremely minimal. And version four was just sort of being uh, conservative, just saying, you know, if there's a single breaking change, no matter how small, uh, go to version four. But honestly, it was just me investigating more of the SCXML spec and wanting to adhere more to that. Oh, by the way, SCXML stands for State Chart XML. It's a W3 recommendation, and it's been used in many different applications. There's SCXML compatible libraries in so many different languages, but that's besides the point. So me following the SCXML spec more closely led to some breaking changes, which led to version 4. Plus, I wanted to just clean things up a bit. So when thinking about version five, that's also not as much a fundamental shift, but more me reading specs again and wanting to clean things up. In particular, with version five, I want to focus more on what's called the actor model. And the actor model is also a really old model of computation 
This one dates back even further, 1973 by Carl Hewitt and Paul Armstrong, I believe. Anyway, uh, there's this really popular uh, library called ACA in the Java Scala world that pretty much sets the standard for how this actor model should work. And just to give a quick summary, state charts describe the behavior of a single thing. Actors describe the behavior of how different things communicate with each other. So you make state charts and actors and you have a really powerful model that could describe, you know, just pretty much any one of your applications. So uh, version five is going to be me just focusing a lot more on the actor model, making sure it aligns with ACA and everything that they've learned, and um, also making it more modular. People have told me that uh, XState is a little bit big, so I want to make it more modular and also a lot smaller and more simplified. You encounter, like when you decided to port XState to Vue, did you encounter like major challenges or different challenges that where you ported it to React? So first of all, XState Vue, this was actually one of the first major PRs that were completely by contributors because I'm mainly a React.js developer, even though I like to consider myself, you know, just frameworkless. Like I, I don't like thinking in frameworks. I like thinking in just other things and more general things. But Vue was an external contribution by I think two or more people who are big in the Vue community. Alexei Deeks, I believe is his name. Really awesome guy. I, I met him in Switzerland, actually. But when I was first just talking about library integration, there were no library adapters whatsoever. There wasn't an XState React or XState Vue or XState Svelte just because the patterns are pretty much straightforward. What you have is you have either a pure transition function, which is just like a reducer, and you could throw that anywhere. In fact, people have written about using that within Vuex, and it just works. Now, when you start interpreting the machines and having this live instance where you could send events to and just interact with it and subscribe to state updates, then that's just basically an event emitter pattern. And you could throw that directly in view and just subscribe to it and update the state with that. And everything still works. So really, these adapters are just thin adapters over the XState core library. And so honestly, with Vue, I had a lot less trouble working with it than React. <laughs> and there are reasons for that, but uh, Vue is a lot more friendly to the, we're not going to invent a whole new pseudo model of programming with hooks or anything like that. It's just data and reactivity, all pretty straightforward concepts. Yeah, and that's really what, like when I tried Vue and with XState, that's really one of the things that I love is that, okay, we already have reactivity. We don't, we don't have to use any, well, now you can do that with Vue 3, but you change something and it reacts right away. Mm -hmm. You don't have to use any, any function to do it. And so when you add state machines on top of that, it's like you basically, you put everything in place and then it kind of magically happens. All yeah. you have to do is trigger events. Okay, I mm -hmm. clicked on something. I just want to toggle my state. So I, I just send a toggle event or whatever event, and then everything will flow right away. And that's, that's one of the things that really got me hooked, no pun intended, but uh, with, uh, <laughs> with X state and with, yeah. with, with using state machines is that when you try to use 
Booleans, for example, to, to, to define states or to do transition between states. It's like, yeah, you're using those primitives that are not necessarily the best tool. And when you just introduce state machines, it's like you're finally giving state the domain that it deserves. It, mm-hmm. You're like deferring, you're delegating that behavior, that state management to, to something that is made for it. And so you can forget about a whole lot of problems, a whole range of problems, like the, the most obvious being having states that are conflicting, uh, something yeah. cannot be closed and open at the same time. That mm. you can forget. You, you can even forget about testing it, like uh, uh, unit testing it. You can just, okay, uh, if, I open, if I click here, it opens. If I click again, it closes. But that's something that you can test in integration or end-to-end. You don't have to test that behavior inside and out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's just like, you know, static typing. I don't know how big uh, static typing is in the view world. Is view free three going to like uh, have TypeScript support? I believe it is, right? Yeah. So, all right, yeah. that's exciting. <laughs> but yeah, that, 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 that's another thing where you eliminate a whole class of things that you need to test just because it's provided by the type system. And in this case, like you were saying, it is provided by the state machine itself. And that's why I like using mathematical models because there's proof that by definition of the state machine, you could only be in one state at a time. So you represent two states that are incompatible. Guess what? They're never going to conflict. Now, ask any of your coworkers who have Boolean flags all over the place. Can you guarantee me? Can you? I, I bet you a hundred dollars that this, you know, will never happen or something like that. They will not take that bet just because it's like, ah, okay, I'm not sure. It could happen, but likely it won't. So that's why I, I just like to be really safe with my code and use state machines. Yeah, I. I actually just this last week had to address a ongoing problem caused by use of Boolean state. (laughs) So let's say you have a list of items that can be expanded or collapsed individually, but you also want a way to expand or collapse them as a group. Now, it's really hard to track whether or not one has already been opened or closed. So, you know, is expanded true or false? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Becomes problematic really quickly. So mm-hmm. I, I had actually listened to, I don't, I wish I could remember what podcast it was, but a podcast where you were talking about state machines a few months ago, time has been a weird concept lately. So I actually have no <laughs> idea how long ago it was, <laughs> but and so like, I thought about like the idea of, you know, an idle state and then an event that indicates a transition. So what I ended up doing was, you know, having it either be idle and then expand or collapse and then idle again so that you know each component in the list knew, oh, if I see this, I need to be in this state. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So, you helped me. It, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I think that using enums like that or just like only one of these values is a really good stepping stone to using state machines. A lot of people now, like when they're learning state machines, they think that it's just, okay, you can only be in one of these states, but it, it's a little bit more than that. You could only be in one of these states and these states could only transition to these states on those events. So those are sort of the two main components that make state machines. But yeah, even using an enum helps so, so much. What are some of the most creative applications that you've seen of X-State? Like I'm sure you probably... Like, I- I've seen on NPM that there are so many dependents on, uh, on XState right now. And I'm wondering, yeah. uh, did you see like some cool XState galleries? Is there 
such a thing mm-hmm. out there? No, there isn't. It is something that I'm planning on making this summer, though. I think it'd be really useful to just have a central place where you could reference a lot of machines and things that people have created and be able to reuse and tweak that logic as as you want. But no, the, there were some really cool examples just all over the front end and back end. A lot of XState stuff is, of course, front end, whether it's Vue or XState or Svelte or even without any frameworks. But I have seen some really interesting applications where people were using XState for, what's it called? Like that voice thing where, you know, when you, you pick up a phone, it's like, press one to do this. And then it gives you a list of options, press two to do that. So you could model that using a state machine. And people have done that using XState. Gatsby, which is a popular static page generator for React, even though this has nothing to do with React, but it uses XStates to drive a lot of its backend processes just to make it a lot simpler to work with. So you see XState being used in the backend as well as the uh, front end. And there, there was a really cool site I saw recently called MIDI.city where they refactored over to XState. And it's an online synthesizer. I spent like half an hour playing with it last night. It's, it's really, really cool. One question that I had going back to adapting this idea of state machines to framework was when I was reading about them, it sounded like in terms of like the communication within a state machine, it relies on this like broadcast type system. So I'm not sure if I'm understanding it correctly, but it sounds like the paradigm is basically like anything can be listening for an event. And regardless of whether something hears the event or not, you would transition states. and. I feel like with like just a normal HTML page that makes sense. But then when we get into components and stuff where not everything has access to all of the events, I'm curious to hear more about how the state machine works with those events. Like is the state machine always listening to all events or um, sorry, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but basically <laughs> I'm wondering how those two different kinds of scoping of events work together. So with state machines and the actor mall in particular, Basically, each entity is only listening for events sent directly to it. And uh, one of the restrictions of the actor model is that actually it's just like real life. Like I could only talk to people like let's say that I want to contact people on my phone. I could only talk to people that I have contact information for. So people where I have their number. If I don't have their number, I, I can't contact them unless I get it somehow. So with the actor model in particular... It's you, you need a reference to something saying like, this is my number or my reference, so to speak. And that way, you know, two things could talk directly to each other. So the scoping is really actually really private. Same thing for components as well. Components can communicate with each other. I, I believe that you has its own events mechanism. I don't know if it's, if it could listen to basically any events, like some sort of event bus thing, but long story short, communication is isolated to who do you know and not just broadcast to the world, at least not by default. I see. Okay. Yeah. It kind of made me think of event buses, which is why I was curious because Yeah, no. There there was a bus, but it's it's gone now. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that in view three? They're just removing that? I think it it it's just like it was it was removed from the docs at some point within the view two lifespan. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> because some people did it and hated themselves. I've mm. just, I've heard rumors. Yeah. I, I removed it from the docs. I mean, it's technically, you, you can still do that kind of thing. But anytime that people try to do it, it was always a bad idea. Uh, yeah. And there were always simpler solutions. 
That see that that makes a lot of sense. I think the whole event plus approach is like you getting a notification for absolutely everything on Slack or whatever you use. It's just really chatty, really noisy, and you have to filter down what to look for. It's not really best pattern. And unlike state machines, it's really hard to keep track of like why something happened. Yeah, yeah, because you don't know where an event came from. Yeah. Uh, XState does keep track of, hey, here's an event that came specifically from this source that you have direct communication with. So, yeah. So maybe for people who would be thinking of moving from, like, moving from something like Vuex or from an, another state management library is, do you think that XState can replace fully uh, a global state? Can it become a global state? Can it, uh, because state machines are about finite states. So it cannot yes. hold arbitrary, arbitrary states. It cannot be like, a, oh, you receive something that is an, uh, is, is unknown. You have to mm-hmm. know what it is. But like, if let's say I'm using Vuex for kind of everything and I have my data states, but also my application states in Vuex, is it possible for me to move to XState and why should I do it? So a lot of people have actually moved from Vuex to XState. Originally, I said that you could use Vuex and XState together, and that's what some people have done early on. But in general, XState is not meant to be framework specific, but you could basically use it both at the local context and at sort of a global context where you just have multiple things listening to state updates from XState. I think Vuex, just like Redux, sort of enforces this global single store. And you sort of have to narrow down what you want to pick and choose from that store. XState's a fundamentally different concept. You could have many machines that talk to each other. Or you could even use some other sort of ad hoc mechanism for them talking to each other, such as with Vue. I think you just pass uh, props or something. Or I don't know. <laughs> That's why going back to Chris, Chris Fritz's point, like a good communication mechanism is just parents to child, child to parents. And that goes back to knowing exactly who you're referencing and knowing exactly who you could send events to and receive events from. And parents, child makes the most sense and is a really good restriction for that. So with the addition of this actor paradigm in version five, like, can you give some examples of how that will enhance UI development? Yeah, sure. So for example, let's say that you want to, it's called invoking, and that's an SCXML term. Uh, term you want to invoke a promise. So you could be in a state where you, you have loading, and then you're invoking that promise. And so you could consider that promise an actor. Basically, once it's created, it's eventually going to send you back an event saying, uh, here's, the, here's a resolved data, or here's some sort of rejection. And then if you say, all right, our business case became a lot more complex, we have some more rules, then you could turn that promise into something like an observable or even another machine where even when you invoked it, you could continue to send events to it and it might send back uh, more than one event. And of course, those actors could also invoke other actors. And so you have sort of this hierarchy that's not too different than you know, views component hierarchy already. And so it, it is present in version four already. Admittedly, it is an additional learning curve on top of like learning what state charts are. But in version five, I hope to simplify that a lot. 
I was wondering, like, did you ever see any wrongful usage of state machines, like maybe stemming from misconceptions that people have? Because it's not something that is that you may understand right away, like especially mm -hmm. because it's finite states. And so I'm wondering if you've seen people try to use state machines for the wrong reasons or for the wrong application and maybe what advice you would have for someone who may be going into it, hearing, okay, uh, state machines are the new thing. I'm just going to go and maybe to save them uh, a few hours of trouble. <laughs> yeah. So just like with any technology, I always, always say that don't use it just because it's hyped up or you feel like you need to use it. Even right now, what I do first, regardless of which framework I'm working in, I would just write a reducer. I would start writing my logic in there. If it's simple enough, then okay, that's fine. Once I get to more complex use cases, I turn to pencil and paper, not XState just yet, even though I wrote the library, but I will model it out as a state machine and figure out what all the possible states are, what could happen. And if it's complex enough, I will say, okay, I need to move over to um, XState. What I see some people doing, that there's a lot of confusion between, and this goes back to your previous question, confusion about just what I call finite states versus extended states. And so extended states are the, that extra infinite state that you were talking about. Like, let's say you have an object that comes in or you're keeping track of a count of something that could be potentially infinite. So state charts do embody both finite states and extended states. And it's important that you use both of them together. So you could have a loading state and then you could have a loaded state, but the value of the user in the extended state could be you know, anything. I mean, there's billions of people on earth, like it could be absolutely any single one of them. And you don't want to model each of those as a finite state. And so that's where the distinction comes in. I like to think of finite states as behaviors. Like a finite state is meant to classify what behavior should my system have when it's in this state. For example, if I'm in the finite state of sleeping, then ideally I'm not able to do anything like cook a meal or anything else. But if I'm awake, then my behavior changes. Now I could do something like cook a meal or read a book or something like that. But one, uh, another misconception I saw was people were asking, there's this thing called guards, where you basically have a conditional expression that says whether you're allowed to take a transition or not. And people have been asking, how do you do async guards? And so the idea of async await does not exist in state machines because the state of awaiting is a state. So you have a very explicit loading state. There's no async await. And that's a feature, not a, not a deliberate omission. Is there, is there anything that you would love to see happen in userland, like either an addition to X state or maybe practical usage that uh, you don't have time to do yourself, but you would really <laughs> like that someone, do, someone does it? Honestly, I would just really like to see more examples of uh, people using state machines in creative ways, you know, more real world usage in applications, which it exists in the wild, but it's either in some closed source, you know, business specific application, or there's little toy examples floating around everywhere. And so that's why I myself, when I have the time, I'm trying to make more and more complex examples. Also, visualization. I'm right now working on a visualizer for XData and the DevTools is going to use that visualizer. But I want to see people uh, be able to visualize these machines in either GraphViz or PlantUML or any of these other visualization tools that can support 
the structure of the state machine that X state provides. So definitely more experiments and more visualization. Yeah, personally, I, like that, probably my next project, which would be using uh, X state, is something that I actually need. So I don't know if any of you ever contributed to the definitely typed repository. If you did, you know that they have an awesome workflow when you open a PR. They have a bot that handles the entire flow from beginning to end. And re-implementing that using state machines would be a perfect use case for me because a PR can only be in a given state at a given time. Yeah. And, there, and you can imagine many more states, like it's not only the GitHub or GitLab states, but it's also like, it, does it need a review? Uh, does it need a review? Uh, is it passing? If it's passing, maybe it doesn't need a review because you don't review PRs that are not passing, etc. So that definitely uh, is going to be something that uh, I'm, I'm going to work on. And something that I would love to see would probably be, as you said earlier, like a visualization of what everything that is possible in an application. Like mm. you create an application that uses state machines. So basically you have all the instances that of uh, all the machines that you've created and being able to dump some, some graph that you could pass on to someone like to, to a stakeholder or to a, to a PM or to a designer and just ask them, okay, is it actually what should be happening without yeah. them having to test the entire flow themselves? That would exactly. be really awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope to see that too. Definitely more tools for less technical people or just the ability to express these machines in not so much a technical way. On that note, I feel or like into it, but don't really have any evidence to back this up that like state machines can potentially open up a lot more interesting avenues to create like dynamic or more so-called intuitive or accessible user interfaces. And I was wondering if you have either any thoughts on that or you've seen any interesting examples around those topics? Yeah, so I, I gave a talk just on those possibilities. I mean, I, I still feel like it's early days for state machines and state charts on the web, despite it being a really old concept and other people doing state machine work even before I started doing it. But as far as accessibility, when you think about things like how a user could flow through the app and even things like tab order, just being able to visualize like, you know, just when you press tab, what field do you go to next? Is it what the user would expect? What if um, you're tabbing through something and the modal shows up? Like, how should tab order be respected there? And I, I think that there's a lot of really awesome possibilities for accessibility, as well as what's called adaptive user interfaces. So adaptive user interfaces are basically user interfaces that adapt to the user's behavior. So the more you use something over time, it adapts to you. It says, you know what? I, I know your preferences. You're using this tool a lot, so I'm going to put it front and center for you, or you keep closing out of this, so I'm just not going to show it to you. And those are really small examples, but basically you could use state machines and state charts to have a, a solid abstract model of how your app can be used so that you could analyze uh, the weights of each of the transitions between states and be able to say, okay, for this user, this is how we should improve the behavior, or for these classes of users, we should uh, change the behavior of the application in this way. And so it's sort of like A-B tests on steroids, so to speak. But yeah, there, there's a lot of potential applications. Yeah, because basically you have everything you need 
to attach any kind of events like analytics events and knowing, okay, yeah. this transition happens a lot and it's often from that state to that state. So you basically have a, a really, really good idea of what is happening and from what and to what. So mm-hmm. that's really, really powerful. Yeah. And it's all in one place because uh, with state machines, you have a single transition function that basically controls all of the states. So you don't have to litter your code with little uh, telemetry or analytics code. Awesome. Well, this has been really great just to learn all about like state machines and the possibilities that exist for developers out there who are you know figuring out state management because that's a problem that it feels like everyone's just constantly trying to solve. So <laughs> it's been um, really great being able to chat with you about this. As far as, you know, where can people find you on the internet of things if they have questions, David? So I am David K. Piano pretty much everywhere. GitHub, Twitter, Instagram, even though I don't post that many tech things on there. Yeah, David K. Piano pretty much everywhere. Someone was telling me you also have a YouTube channel. Uh, So I don't specifically, but I do a weekly live stream with my friend Shaw, who works over at CodePen. And we, we do these, these animations from Dribbble or from anywhere else. And we try to code them using just pure CSS, JavaScript, HTML, and most of the time, not even using a framework at all. And so we are the keyframers. And that's on Twitch, on YouTube, and keyframe.rs. All right. Great. Well, with that, it is time to move on to this week's picks. Tessa, would you like to go first? Uh, okay. Yeah. So my pick for this week is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Dual Destinies. It's on 3DS, iOS, and Android. It's kind of an old series of games. I'm not sure how new this one is. I haven't played them in a while. But basically, you're playing as a lawyer in Japan, slash you're also an investigator. I'm not sure how much of it is true to the Japanese <laughs> legal system. I mean, it's certainly... Very fantastical. A friend was telling me that part of its inspiration was to protest injustices in the legal system. And also, fun fact, now that I'm playing again and know Ben, I'm realizing that Phoenix Wright and Ben kind of remind me of each other. So that's that's a fun Easter egg if you play. I will say though, if you do check out this game, there is like a very proactively cis normative moment in there. So just know know that that's there but yeah it's it's been a fun ride to go back to it i've been playing on an ipad so it's kind of cool to see it on the bigger screen awesome all right sarah what do you have for us this week all right so i have two picks the first one is a youtube channel and it's called 10 second songs i don't know if you're familiar with it it's really really nice so it's by a singer called anthony vincent he's a really seasoned singer and he makes those awesome uh, short covers but he changes the style. So for example, he can do a video like uh, 10 songs in the style of Metallica, or he would go Hello by Adele in 25 different styles. So it's really awesome. It's going to become your new favorite music YouTube channel, and you're going to binge it inside and out. There's no doubt about it. And so on a more serious note, there's a book that I'm uh, rereading right now called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Olwo. It is probably the most important book that I've read in the last decade, if not more. It's New York Times bestseller, and it offers like this much, much needed reality check to race on racism in modern America. Even though like I'm a French person and I feel that it applies to my country or any 
Western rich country where like the norm is defined as white. So really, I really recommend to read it, especially if you're white, because every page is going to make you think. Awesome. Party, what do you have for us this week? First, I'm going to second Sarah's 10 Second Songs YouTube channel pick. My husband had me watching that the other day and it's so much fun. That guy is incredible. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on. I haven't done this in a while, so I'm going to pick a song. Truth is, I don't remember what all I've already picked. So I'm hoping I haven't already picked this song. <laughs> but Disintegration Anxiety by Explosions in the Sky. And then my second pick is a TV show on Netflix called Dead to Me. It's the second season just premiered recently. So if you watched the first season and somehow you haven't been on Netflix in forever and it didn't tell you, it's out. I haven't quite finished it yet, but it is amazing. It's the sort of the perfect dark comedy in that it takes these very like real moments, very emotional moments, and it finds the humor in them in a way that you would find humor in your own situation like that, like grief and how funny and weird grief can be, even though it's heartbreaking. So I'm a big fan of that. And those are my picks. Awesome. David, what do you have for us this week? So I actually have this, I mean, it's related to this whole podcast, but there's an article or a tutorial by Sarah Dan herself using state machines in view with X state. And this was written back in February. It's a really, really good example of how you would use state machines and X states together with view right now. It's using the the current view syntax, not the composition API, even though that should be a pretty straightforward change. But it's just a really interesting example of how to make a markdown editor, which is definitely non-trivial and not something that's super simple, using XState in view. So I, I really, really love this, this tutorial. Oh, and also, like I mentioned, MIDI.city, like since we're all talking about music, it's a really fun online synthesizer. All right, great. And for this week, my one pick is the new gaming laptop that I got recently. It's an Acer Predator Triton 500, and I've never owned a gaming laptop in my life. So it's kind of insane to have this like really gorgeous like device that can run VR and all these really advanced 3D animations and stuff. And it's been... Yeah, I used to have like a giant tower case. So this is like a huge upgrade. <laughs> so yeah, super excited about it. Um, and that's my fun pick for the week. All right. And with that, that is all for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Sarah and David for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view.